Have you ever been sitting next to someone while they're eating and the noise that they're making, it aggravates you? Have you ever had that experience where someone is sitting next to you at the theater or something and they're, they're chewing on their popcorn and it just, it just starts to drive you crazy? Well, there are some people that actually have an exaggerated version of this in that they will become extremely uh, hyper-aroused and, and emotional and angry and even depressed and anxious when they hear particular sounds and particularly sounds that other people make with their mouths, <laughs> but, but it, it can involve other kinds of sounds. And today's episode, I want to talk about it. They actually call it misophonia. And let me actually give you a written description from someone on the internet. They, they wrote a description of what it's like to have misophonia, and it was on a public forum, and they said, I cancel coffee dates with certain friends because I know they will sniff or clear their throats more often than others. I can't be in the same place as other people when they are eating because I can't stand people sla- slapping their lips together or talking with food in their mouths. I grit my teeth when people whistle or hum. I hate it when people suck food off their fingers and make that pop noise with their mouth. Tongue clicking sends me into an internal rage machine. I like that. An internal rage machine. Loud yawning, constant sighing, loud breathing, even people tapping their fingers on tables or rotating their ankles and stretching out their toes drive me crazy. So that's just one description. Now, like I said in the beginning, we I think we can all relate to if someone's chomping away on something right next to us in the movie theater, it'll it'll get to us. But this is something really quite beyond that. And it's not just a, a slight annoyance. It's it's actually it can actually interfere with your with your life. And so I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about misophonia. I want to talk about the definition. I'm talking about the research, background, the triggers, the treatment, what it looks like. I'm going to do the full psychological rundown here. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle. I'm also a professor in that program, and I am a licensed therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That is patreon.com. And if you become a patron, remember that all patrons can access the premium feed on their phones. So there's a separate feed that's just for patrons of the podcast in which they get access to all of our all of our exclusive episodes. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone people. As I always say, we love you very much for becoming patrons. It really means a lot to us. All right, so let's talk about the definition. And as I go through this, give me uh, a little bit of leeway here because I'm reading from several different sources right now, and I'm just trying to pull it all together. So I might have to pause and repeat myself a few times. But anyway, so the definition, it, it literally means, I, I'm guessing in Latin or Greek, it, it literally means hatred of sound. So miso must be sound and, or no, miso must be hate and phonia as in phonograph or telephone means sound. So hatred, hatred of sound. Probably misogyny is probably in there. Miss, miss, uh, miso must mean hatred, so misogyny, hatred of women. So literally means hatred of sound. It's, it's extreme sensitivity. So the definition, I'm going to say a few different angles of the definition. One definition you could say is it's extreme sensitivity to selective sounds. Another definition, disproportionately strong affective and physiological reactions to certain sounds. In the psychological world, when they use the word affect or affective, they're talking about emotional. So maybe a more mainstream of saying it is disproportionately strong emotional and physiological reactions to particular sounds. Another definition, a chronic condition in which specific sounds provoke intense emotional experiences, including triggering impulsive aggression. We'll get into more 
of the particular reactions later on. Also, it's sometimes called selective sound sensitivity syndrome, or SSSS, or just simply 4S. Again, selective sound sensitivity syndrome. A lot of S's in there. Another name that it'll be called is soft sound sensitivity. A lot of S's. I'm guessing that, well, anyway, maybe S's bother, or maybe they're less. Anyway, this, another, uh, see here, this disorder is not caused... By a so, it's important to remember, backing up here, that this misophonia is not caused by a hearing impairment, and it's not the same as an oversensitivity to the volume of sounds. Because some people have a oversensitivity to the loudness of sounds. This is different than that. This is being sensitive to particular sounds, even if they're quite quiet. Okay, let's look at the background here. Um. It was first uh, termed as the selective sound sensitivity syndrome. It wasn't originally called misophonia. And it was first termed in the, ni- in the 1990s. Later, it was uh, called misophonia to refer to abnormally strong negative reactions of the autonomic and limbic systems to specific sounds resulting in enhanced functional connections between the auditory and limbic limbic systems. (laughs) So limbic meaning your emotional systems, autonomic meaning your, your physical, you know, reaction or like your fight or flight response. Also, it should be noted that it has not been researched much, and much most of the research has happened very recently in the past few years. So it's a fairly unknown issue. But as with most things with the brain, it's mostly a mystery anyway. Okay, so let's talk about the triggers. What triggers typical misophonia episodes? The most frequent triggering sounds are those associated with oral functions or functions of the mouth like breathing or yawning or chewing or sniffling or swallowing. I find that to be very interesting that for the most common triggering sounds are things that people do with their mouths. (laughs) I mean, I think we can all relate to not wanting to hear people chew their food and whatnot. And of course it's cultural, but, but it's interesting that that's, that's what drives them nuts. But also other things that can bother people with misophonia are things like typing, typing on a keyboard, or pencil scratching, or trickling water, or crinkling paper. So it doesn't have to do with the mouth and doesn't even have to do with other people. Other things, smacking of the lips, eating, chomping of the teeth. Again, I mentioned breathing before. But the, the most common things that people will say that drive them crazy are people eating or even repetitive tapping. Let's, get, let's, let's review what that first person said. They said that uh, sniffing or clearing their throats, so it's the person that was posting on the forum. Sniffing, clearing their throats, eating, slapping their lips together, talking with their mouths open, whistling or humming, sucking food off the fingers, making that pop noise with their mouth, clicking their tongues, loud yawning, sighing, loud breathing, even people tapping their fingers on tables or rotating their ankles, stretching out their toes. These are all things that one person identifies. So there seems to be a wide range, and I find that to be true in the cases that I know, uh, that there often is a wide range of things that will drive them nuts. Okay, so... What happens immediately after the trigger happens? Oh, incidentally, I should tell everyone that this is actually in response to a listener who wrote in, a a patron. Remember always that patrons get their answers, get their emails read more often. Let me just read that email here. Hi, Kirk. I'm a patron of the podcast and absolutely love hearing and learning from you and the other people who come on the show. I do have a request. Could you do a podcast about misophonia? I find the topic fascinating, as I myself suffer from sudden, sometimes barely controllable bursts of rage when I hear someone chew near me. Even thinking about it makes my skin crawl. It's the strangest sensation when I hear the sound. Ridiculous amounts of rage mixed with the feeling of needing to defend myself. 
I just want to focus on that. So it's not just aggravation. You know, you're not just hearing someone chewing popcorn next to the theater and you're like, God, be quiet. It's actually a uncontrollable amount of anger and the need to defend yourself. It's a, it's a very physical reaction. So getting back in the email. In fact, once in school many years ago, a girl snuck up behind me and chewed very loudly in my ear, knowing it bothered me. My instant reaction was to swing a fist around, and I almost caught her right in the chin. Not my most shining moment. Just chiming in here, I think that that person was being quite mean to you. And that's another thing I want to point out is that we can often, someone will be bothered by this, you know, and and we might say, oh, get over it, it's no big deal. And that's why a lot of these people feel ashamed of themselves or they don't get treatment because they're, they're being treated badly by people. And it's actually, for some people, quite quite a serious issue. And we'll get into more of the prevalence later. But anyway, getting back to the email. Oddly, my own chewing bothers me too sometimes, but not nearly as much. What makes this all so strange to me is that I'm usually a very relaxed person. It takes a lot to really ruffle my feathers. So the fact that something can turn me from joyful to ready to punch in about two seconds is super weird. Anyway, would love to to know your thoughts. The way I see it, it's sort of like with OCD. Some people will say like, oh, I'm so OCD because they're just slightly organized, like they like things to be organized. Well, there's a far cry between just being normally organized, shall we say, or or say on the the end, end of the spectrum of being very clean, or being a little freaked out by germs. There's a far cry between that and someone with full-blown obsessive-compulsive disorder. It's the same here. There's some people like myself when I'm in the theater. And I'm, let me just tell you, people, if you're in a theater and you know, just be mindful of the noise you're making, <laughs> particularly with your mouth. So I'm one of those people where it kind of bothers me. But I don't, I don't have anything close to what uh, characterizes misophonia and other people. I was watching a movie recently, I think it was Star Wars, and this guy, he would eat his popcorn. You know, popcorn comes in those in those paper sacks. It's a well they come in various forms, but he was eating popcorn in one of those big paper sacks. And the paper is is thick anyway. So, you know, he's, he'd be eating his popcorn. He's sitting right next to me, so I can't help but to sort of notice what he's doing. And every time he was done eating his popcorn, he would he would scrunch the the top of the bag. He would close the bag essentially. You know, like if you were taking your lunch to school, you would and you have room at the top of the sack, you sort of roll it up and then you carry it, right? Well, he, every time he was done, which was like five, six, seven times, he would roll it up and it would make the loudest noise. And he would do it during quiet moments in the movie. And I, and then I just thought, okay, one, why are you closing the bag? That doesn't make any sense. You're just you're not keeping it for freshness. You're 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 going to eat this at the movie theater only probably. Or at the very least, you're opening it several times. There's there's that and also you're going to have to open it back up and that's going to make noise and I don't there's just some people I just swear to god it's like they seem to not have any awareness of how they're affecting other people. So, you know, anyway. Okay, so let's get to what happens after the immediate triggers. So we've talked about, you know, mouth functions, smacking of the lips, tapping on someone, tapping on a table, these kinds of things. There's lots of different noises that will trigger people. All right, so what's the immediate reaction that happens to someone? Well, the most common reaction is extreme rage. As the patron talked about, people's most common reaction with misophonia is extreme rage. But all other other reactions are anxiety, frustration, disgust, and even harm ideation. (laughs) That's a euphemism or a nice way of saying it in the psychological world that you want to kick their ass or punch them in the face. Harm ideation meaning your ideation is having thoughts about. And so you're, you're having thoughts about harming other people. 
So again, rage, anxiety, frustration, disgust, harm, ideation. Physiologically, the sound can create an overwhelming sympathetic nervous system response or a a fight-or-flight response. That was another thing the patron talked about is this feeling of, of wanting to defend herself. Sufferers may experience a panic desire to escape or violent urges directed at the, at the person. Individuals uh, often experience significant distress, anger, or discomfort. So distress and anger and discomfort, it's extreme. They might even cry because they can't get out of it. Um, and then some rare individ- individuals feel compelled to mimic the sound. So if someone's making a sound with their, their mouth, they'll, they'll feel compelled that they have, to, they have to create it themselves, not to mock the person, but just to, it's just an itch that they can't scratch unless they actually just make the sound themselves. So again, immediate reaction, typical anger and anxiety and frustration and a fight or flight response, a physical response. And that's not me. When, when I was sitting in the theater and listening to the guy with his popcorn, I, was, I wasn't physically reacting. I wasn't having a fight-or-flight response. I was, I was more annoyed, slightly annoyed, and judgmental. But I wasn't, uh, I wasn't having a physiological response. Okay, let's, let's talk about another, another case. There's another person from the Internet that was talking here. And they're saying... I just found out that this is a real thing. So just chiming in here. Or, and they go on to say, I am so relieved that I'm not alone. So they're saying, I just found out that this is a real thing. I am so relieved that I'm not alone. So just chiming in here, this is a common response that people will say. Because, like I was saying earlier, that most people have some kind of pet peeve, shall we say, that other people do when they're eating. You know, some people eat with their mouth open and it drives people crazy or, or I'm, I'll tell you one thing. I'm Japanese and half Japanese and it's common for, I get, I think I get it from, from my Japanese side. It's common for Japanese people to slurp liquids when they drink. Like if I'm drinking coffee, it's like, I don't just drink it. I, you know, I slurp it (laughs) and it sounds grosser than it is, I think, but you know, you sip it, you, you know, you sort of sip it into your mouth. Well, it, that drives some people crazy around me. And so most people know, or most people have something that, that, that annoys them about other people regarding this. And so when they hear about someone else having a problem with it, they, they think that they're on the same level, that they have the same level of problem. And when the person says, I want to punch that person in the face, they might even just laugh and say, oh yeah, me too. Even though they don't, they don't really know what the person is saying. What the other person is saying, the person with misophonia, is they actually want to punch the person in the face. It's not just a, they're not, it's not just an expression. And so when the person starts to freak out and have an anxiety reaction, other people will, will downplay it and say, oh, you're overreacting. Oh, what's wrong with you? Calm down. Take it easy. Just, you know, just put up with this. No big deal. Well, the same you would do for someone with OCD, if someone had a full-blown OCD uh, problem, then you wouldn't make them uh, not wash their hands if they had a germ thing. You would understand that this is extreme for them, and and to some extent they have a disability, and to downplay it or to just force them to go against what, what they want is actually really mean to them. And so they go throughout their life feeling this way, and then when they find out that misophonia is a thing, they feel very relieved to know that there are other people like this and and that this is uh, at least somewhat normal in a small percentage of the population. Okay, going back to the email here. For me, it's the crunching of foods, slurping, and smacking. Basically, any food noises suck. Also, when certain people say the word C and R together, I want to cry. I, so that, chiming in here. So sometimes it's consonants. It's particular consonant sounds that will drive people crazy. Okay, so going into it again. I can't stop thinking about it for hours, and I get really aggravated. 
I've been known to yell and mock as well as isolate myself. I'm especially bad with my family, and I feel so bad about it. I'm 16 years old, and hopefully I can now figure out how to deal with this. Okay, so what's the cause? What's the etiology of this uh, of misophonia? The cause of misophonia is relatively unknown. As, as I said earlier, with a lot of things involving the brain, we just don't really understand the brain or have the ability to measure the brain precisely enough or in a way that really is helpful. So we can't, we can't really understand a lot of things about the brain. We can point toward potentially particular areas of the brain that seem to get more oxygen when certain experiences are reported by the individual, but it's really hard to tell. It's also important to note that it's been found that the auditory system in people's, you know, the in people's brains and and in terms of how we measure their auditory system is functioning normally. In other words, it's it's not overly excitable. Some people have an overly excitable auditory system. People with misophonia don't have that. It's not it's not an oversensitivity to noise, as I said earlier. It's it's a sensitivity to particular it's a it's a particular reaction to particular noises. Okay. It's also suggested, according to some research, to be associated with an enhanced auditory limbic and autonomic nervous system. So in other words, it seems potentially uh, a potential cause might be that in the brain, the connections between the hearing center, the auditory center, the emotional center, and the, the autonomic nervous system, or the, the fight-or-flight response, there, there seems to be a, a heightened connection between those three areas. But, you know, that's, that's a pretty crude thing to, to say, and we just don't know that much about it. All right. Uh, and in my opinion, I'm guessing that they're going to find in the future that trauma is pro- trauma causes all sorts of disorders. So I'm guessing that trauma might play some role. I'm guessing that some, maybe even some trauma regarding some noise. I don't know. I'm guessing that childhood neglect and parenting neglect, parental neglect might have something to do with it. These are guesses, pure speculation, but I'm just going to take a guess on those. All right. The onset. When does it normally happen? Well, it usually, it usually begins in late childhood or early adolescence. It can happen later, but usually it happens in late childhood or early adolescence. So we're talking like 9, 10, 11 through, through you know, 15. Okay. What's the normal progression? Well, the typical progression is the initial symptoms usually involve noticing a particular, a particular noise in someone close to you, usually in the, in the family, in terms of their eating habits. So if you're a 10-year-old girl, you might start noticing the way that your dad eats dinner. And it, it sort of begins there. It's just a slight noticing of that and being a little annoyed with, a little bothered by it. And then this, this, this sensitivity and this noticing typically becomes more pronounced over time. And then it starts to generalize to other noises. So not only are you bothered by the way your dad eats with his mouth open, but now you're kind of bothered with the way your mom slurps her coffee. And now you're, you're starting to notice you're getting annoyed with the way your brother taps his, his foot. And, and, and so it starts to grow from there. Often in families, the family members will often react to the person with misophonia with annoyance or being dismissive of them. Say, oh, you're just overreacting. Let it go. This doesn't help because it actually drives the person into isolation and makes them feel worse about themselves. And I think it's a breeding ground for full-blown misophonia. Then as, as these people realize that they're uniquely sensitive, they, they feel very, they feel kind of crazy. They feel like, wait, no one else is annoyed with this stuff? 
they often feel ashamed. And they might start figuring out ways to avoid the, the stimulus, to avoid the triggers. Maybe they eat in their bedroom or they don't leave the house very much. And they often are triggered by people that are closest to them. Okay, so, so that's a typical early progression of what it's like for someone who suffers from misophonia. And just a little tip out there. If you're in a family or you're a parent yourself and you notice that one of your children is starting to develop a sensitivity to these kinds of things, you might want to start paying attention to it because early, early treatment or even just an early approach as a parent might actually help. And to dismiss it or to downplay it might actually drive them into secrecy and just cause the problem to, to reinforce itself. Okay, what's the prevalence? How many people actually have this? Again, as I said earlier, most people have some, some noises that annoy them. So when they actually ask people, do any particular noises get on your nerves? A lot of people will say yes. But in terms of if we're, if we're going to try to see more severe, if we're, if we're on a spectrum of people that have never been annoyed with any sound, and then you have full-blown misophonia on the other side, about 20% of, of people in one study was found to have uh, more in the spectrum of misophonia symptoms. Let me say that again. <laughs> I said that kind of weird. It was a study in 2014, and they found that of the people that they sampled, of the people that were in their study, 20% reported that they had misophonia-like symptoms. So maybe not full. And here's the other thing. It's not, there is no definition of a misophonia disorder yet. I'm guessing it'll come around at some point, but, but it's not around right now. And so we don't really have a threshold for de- defining what is a disorder and what isn't. But at any rate, 20% of one study said, yeah, I, I, can, I can get a little angry when I hear particular noises from other people. But there's probably far fewer that have what we might call clinically significant symptoms, meaning that it impairs their life and somehow. We don't really know how many you know, people have this. I'm going to take a stab, given my understanding of all the other various disorders and OCD and whatnot, and I'm going to take a stab at you know, between 1% and 3% of the population probably has this. It's just a, just a guess. Okay, comorbidity, or what are the common other disorders that are often associated with misophonia? Well, it's, it's often uh, people who report having misophonia often have depression or anxiety, and particularly OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. Also, there seems to be a connection between misophonia and synesthesia. (laughs) Oh boy, it's a little late tonight, my friends. Uh, Misophonia and synesthesia, synesthesia, which is a neurological condition in which stimulation of a sensory or a cognitive pathway leads to an automatic experience of a second sensory or cognitive pathway. That's the most broad definition. But a common subtype of this is you hear something and then it makes you see something. So you hear a dog bark and you see the color red or something. I'm not that familiar with it, but but essentially it's like, two different sensory pathways in the brain are, are, are kind of crossed or linked in some way. And so for people with synesthesia, they uh, some have a higher rate of having misophonia. Okay. So it might surprise some of you out there that there's actually a psychological measure or a, a, a test to see how how uh, severe your misophonia is. And it's simply called the misophonia questionnaire. And it's a self-report. You're just asking someone to report on various different things. And I just thought it would be interesting to 
to read the various categories that they ask about. So they ask about two different things. They ask about what, what bothers you and then how do you react in the moment. And so the things that they ask about in terms of bothering you, people eating or repetitive tapping or rustling, rustling noises like a rustling leaves, nasal sounds or throat sounds or consonants or vowels, particular consonants, particular vowels, or environmental sounds. I don't know what they mean by environmental sounds. I'm guessing like, I don't even know, birds? <laughs> okay, so those are the different those are the different triggers. And then they ask, okay, and what sort of things happen as a result? How, how does it affect you? Things like leaving the environment or avoiding those sounds or covering your ears or feeling anxious or distressed or feeling sad and depressed or feeling annoyed or having violent thoughts or being angry or being physically aggressive or being verbally aggressive. So it gives you an idea of the kinds of things that at least the authors of this measure thought of as typical to misophonia. Okay, so let's go into the diagnosis. How, what, what's the definition of, of, shall we say, misophonia disorder? Well, that doesn't exist yet. It's not in the DSM-5 and has never been, been in the DSM. But some authors have proposed diagnostic criteria for misophobia, and here we go. Criterion A, the presence or anticipation of a specific sound produced by a human being, for example, eating sounds and breathing sounds, provokes a, an impulsive, aversive physical reaction which starts with irritation or disgust that instantly becomes anger. So just chiming in here. Criterion A that they have is, is really quite specific. It's mainly sounds being made by a human and you become very angry about it. Seems to me it's a little bit of a, a narrow version of misophonia because there are other sorts of things that will trigger misophonia and there are other reactions other than being angry. Okay, criterion B. This anger initiates a profound sense of loss of self-control with rare but potential, potentially aggressive outbursts. So again, they're limiting the definition to just those people that get angry as a result of being triggered. Criterion C, the person recognizes that the anger or disgust is excessive, unreasonable, or out of proportion with the circumstances or the provoking stressor. So just chiming in here. So it's important to note that people with misophonia know that there's something wrong with, with them. <laughs> they know that they're overreacting. They, they recognize that there's something weird about them. This is an important diagnostic measure to whenever you're talking with someone and assessing them is to try to figure out how much insight they have, as they call it. Is it ego syntonic or ego dystonic? Because if they did not recognize that it was excessive, then you might have to wonder if it's something else. If it, maybe they're delusional, for instance. Uh, it's just one, one thing. But anyway, okay. Criterion D, the individual tends to avoid the misophonic situation, or if he or she does not avoid it, endures encounters with the misophonic sound situation with, a, with intense discomfort, anger, or disgust. So it goes on to here and, and says, you know, that it can't be explained by other sorts of disorders, such as OCD, and that this all creates clinical interference with your day-to-day -day life. Like, for instance, not being able to go to work because you're trying to avoid the sounds. Okay, but again, just to reiterate, these are just proposed criteria. They're not established. And uh, I'm guessing in the future, we're, we'll, see, we'll see more of this being locked down. And just because something isn't in the DSM does not mean it doesn't exist. For instance, psychopathy doesn't exist in the DSM, and that exists. Sadism, sadistic personality disorder, doesn't exist in the DSM, but it exists absolutely 
in the real world. So uh, another disorder that I wish was in the DSM was complicated grief or prolonged grief. Although I don't like to pathologize grief, but I would like uh, extreme forms of it to be identified because it is a discrete experience for people. Okay. Although, you know, we could go on and on about the debate about the DSM and the pathologizing of human experience. But uh, let's move on without getting bogged down in that. Okay, treatment. Well, since it's not well understood and hasn't been studied much, we really don't know much about what the best treatment is. But there have been some preliminarily positive results with some forms of treatment, and they seem to make logical sense to me that they would work. The most typical forms of treatment are the following two forms, according to one source that I read. One is the misophonia management protocol. The misophonia management protocol. It uses what they call ear-level noise generators. I'm guessing it's like white noise in your ear. And it also involves about 6 to 12 weeks of CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's, it's basically what it's doing is it's masking the noises in your life so you don't have to deal with them. So it's eliminating the, the stimulus. It's eliminating the triggers while the same, at the same time going to maybe once or twice a week to a therapist to talk about how to calm the body how to interpret the situations. For instance, you with CBT, you might say, okay, so tell me what triggers you. Oh, what triggers me is when I go to work, there's this one guy that when he drinks his coffee, he makes a noise and it, and it just drives me crazy and I want to punch him. And so the therapist, okay, well, let's break this down. How, how can you calm yourself down when that happens? What other things could you say to yourself besides... I need to leave. You know, um, you could say to yourself, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go to the bathroom or I'm going to put in my white noise generators or, or I'm going to ask that person to stop doing it because I have a problem. <laughs> I'm going to politely ask them. You know, just coping skills, just other ways of coping rather than just sitting there and suffering. It might involve cognitions like, the person might believe that they might actually punch the person if they don't leave work and never come back. And the therapist might say, well, let's really look at this. Are you really actually going to punch that person or are you, or you just kind of have an urge? Because there's an urge and then there's actually doing it. And, you know, people have urges to punch people all the time, but they never do it. So, you know, and so maybe that will work. Now, with some people, they might actually have the urge and actually punch people. And so... We have to be careful about that. But, but anyway, so the misophonia management protocol involves white noise in your ears and a, you know, about 10 weeks of CBT. The, other, the second most uh, typical form of treatment for misophonia is called the tinnitus retraining therapy. And I believe it's therapy originally designed for tinnitus, you know, when you hear that ringing in your ear, bee, that kind of stuff. I'll do it again. B. <laughs> this treatment also uses ear-level noise generators. I'm guessing, again, that means white noise generators. It also uses counseling, and it also involves gradual exposure to the triggers. And I like this one because in order to help people get over things like this, since it is close to OCD, so it's, I'll just use OCD as an example. If, if you're going to help someone to get over their fear of germs, then you have to slowly expose them to the things that make, that make them afraid. So with germs, you would start, start off by saying, okay, uh, let me give you this magazine. Other people have touched it. Can, can you hold on to it with some distress but not overwhelming? Yes. Okay. So hold on to it. Now calm yourself down. Tell yourself everything is going to be okay. And slowly the body gets accustomed to it. It becomes habitual to deal with it. It's okay. The body learns. Now, 
the mind knows the magazine knows it is okay. A part of the mind knows. The frontal lobe knows. The, but the limbic system does not know that the magazine knows is okay. The only way the limbic system understands things, if I might be simplistic here, is to experience it. You might remember me talking about trauma therapy. It's, it's the same principle. When you're in therapy and you're talking about a past trauma, you're exposing yourself to the stimulus and you're telling your limbic system that everything is going to be okay. Well, the same goes with misophonia. If you're, if you're triggered by someone tapping their foot, then you have someone tap their foot next to you and you slowly learn through exposure your body slowly gets used to it, habituated to that stimulus so that you're no longer distressed by it. So again, tinnitus retraining is, is white noise to give you temporary relief, give you some control over the triggers. Cognitive behavioral counseling, I'm guessing cognitive behavioral. It just says counseling, but I'm guessing it's CBT. And then gradual exposure to triggers. This form of therapy, according to one study, was found to reduce the severity of misophonia in 83% of the patients that were studied. So almost, almost complete success with that form of therapy, which is really quite encouraging, especially, I'm guessing, to people who suffer from this. Other random forms of therapy are neurofeedback, hypnotherapy, what is some, something called NRT or trigger tamer. That's probably some kind of PTSD thing. And then sequent repatter, repatterning therapy. Sequent repatterning therapy. Three words I've never heard. Two of those words I've never heard before. Sequent. Not sequence, but sequent. I don't even know what that means exactly. Repatterning. I can imagine what that means. But I have no idea. What, I don't know. I know what neurofeedback and I know hypnotherapy. I'm guessing that those are not as successful as the one I was describing. Again, the combination of the white noise, CBT, and the exposure. Okay, so I want to conclude with another person that wrote on the internet. They say, "My entire life, since I was five, I have dealt with this." No one, and I mean no one, understands. They tell you to ignore or suck it up. I tell them I would rather jump off a building than listen to them chew, and they think I'm exaggerating. Well, I'm not. Does anyone else continue to hear the sound bouncing around in your head even after you cover your ears and close your eyes and make it quiet? My hubby is a food wiggler, wiggles all the time. I sometimes grab and twist his foot without any prior thought. He taps his fingernails on the windshield while driving, and I daydream about opening the far door and rolling out onto the highway. I live in my bedroom when I'm home because my husband insists on breathing and he has allergies, so it is so loud. I'm OCD as well, so if I can hear it, I have to count it. It's exhausting. So whistling, humming, tapping, throat noise, sniffling, swallowing, people who have the phone too close to their mouth when talking to me so I can hear the moisture, tapping of spoon on cereal bowl bite after bite, coffee slurping, scratching of dry skin, visuals of a jaw moving, because I know the sound is there even if I can't hear it. Dog and cat licking. <laughs> Dog and cat licking. And oh my God, my best friend bites her chapped lips. I love her so much and I'm so depressed, but I can't be around her anymore. There are so many more, but I'm getting into a frenzy thinking about them. No one understands the misery this is. I'm at a tough job that works me 65 hours a week but am terrified to leave because those in the spaces close to me have been trained, and since I'm their boss, they can't call me crazy. I feel like I could never leave. I love to travel, but on the last flight, I was stuck between a smoker, throat clearer, and a sniffles wiggler. That did it for me. End quote. So this is interesting, and I think it really depicts the 
lifetime of suffering that these people go through. And it's no joke, right? It's not just like, oh, people that slurp kind of bug me. It actually is debilitating to them. This person, they can't go on planes anymore because they're worried about being stuck next to somebody. It's similar, again, to OCD in that you find yourself slightly bothered by germs. Like like you, someone, I don't know, like you accidentally get dog shit on your foot and, and track it into the house. And, you, and it really triggers you. And you haven't had any OCD before that. And then the next time you see dog poo, you go, oh my God, and you have a physical reaction. And then the next time you see a dog, you have a problem. And then the next time you see dirt, it gives you anxiety. And then it just goes on and on from there. Claustrophobia is the same thing. Maybe one day you're kind of stuck in a really uncomfortable position, like in a plane or on a bus or in a train or something, and you can't really get free, and it kind of freaks you out a little bit. And then the next time uh, you get in an elevator, even though elevators didn't bother you before, now suddenly you're freaking out. Now you're freaking out when, when you're in the back seat of a car because you can't, cause, and with a two-door car, you can't get out. Now you can't get on airplanes. Now you don't even want to leave the house because you're worried you're going to have a panic attack. That's how these things, you know, progress. And the same with misophonia. It's not like they just suddenly have all these problems. It's, it's a little, one thing bothers them and then slowly more things bother them. And they start to, they have elaborate systems of trying to manage it, but it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. I find it particularly interesting that this person says that they feel they can't leave their job because they've they've trained their coworkers that are actually they work under this person and close to this you know physically close to this person and this person had, with misophonia has trained them all and said look you can't make the following noises around me or else i will want to punch you in the face and so they all are trained and they know how to accommodate this person and they even though they hate their job they feel they can't leave because they're worried well what if I go to another job and they don't accommodate me in that way? So it can be very debilitating and limiting to people. And it's no joke. Like I said, it's no joke. But there are treatments for these people. As I said before, you can, with support, I, I might, and it wasn't mentioned in here, but family therapy, bringing the family and helping them understand that this is a real problem getting the whole family on board to support the person as they move through treatment. They wear a white noise generator to protect them from these debilitating triggers. They get some CBT counseling, start sifting through the situations and figuring out different ways of thinking and different ways of behaving that will help them cope. And then exposing them gradually, very slowly, very slowly to the, to the triggers so that they will become accustomed to those triggers and not have the not have the difficult reaction. And like I said, one study found 83% of the people that went through this had a significant reduction in the severity of the misophonia symptoms. And there's not a lot of treatments that can claim that high of a success rate. Now this is just one study and blah blah blah, but but I would suspect given, again, that the people with misophonia know that their reaction is excessive. They know that there's something wrong with them. When you know there's something wrong with you, you really, you want help and you want to attack it. And so when the therapist and the client and the family and everyone's on the, on the same page and everyone's working toward the same goal, you can do a lot of things in counseling. And this is one of those things that you can actually help with. It's the same, same goes for OCD or any or panic disorder, or generalized anxiety. Most people with those disorders also believe that their reactions are excessive, that there is something wrong with them. And by wrong, I don't mean like there's something wrong, wrong with you, but there's just that they have a problem and they want to fix it. They want, they don't like it. There are people who have other disorders that actually don't know that it's them. I've talked about borderline before. When you have someone 
that has not very much insight regarding their borderline, they'll think it's everyone else. They won't think it's them. And so, uh, again, people with misophonia, they know most of the time throughout their life there's something different about them. And because we don't have any awareness in our society or even in the clinical field, they don't get any help or education, and they feel ashamed, and they crawl into their shell. And let's do what we can to, to stop that. All right. Well, I hope that answers your question, patron. Thanks for joining me today, and thanks for becoming patrons of the podcast. Let me know how you're doing out there. This, it's the month of February. At least I'm guessing when this episode comes out, it'll still be February, unknown. And uh, I'm thinking that soon I'll do another pledge drive and do an episode every day. Again, my hope is is that if we can reach our goals regarding Patreon, that we can start doing episodes every day and paying our co-hosts and, and you know incentivizing their participation. So again, thanks everyone for becoming patrons. It it really 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 means a lot to me. I can't even tell you. When I, I think I said this before, when I first started this whole thing, I was like will anyone do this? Will anyone become a patron? I mean, God knows, right? And so many of you have, and it's it's been really great. I want to create a small community of, you know, a few hundred of us that really are together on things and um, and communicate back and forth, which I kind of feel like we're starting to do. All right, well, that does it for this episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you truly, truly do deserve it. So take care of yourself and make other people take care of you as well because you deserve Be mutually caring of each other. I watched Bill and Ted the other day, and the big saying is be excellent to each other. Maybe I should sign off with that. Be excellent to each other. <laughs> mm-hmm.